Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Charlotte. For our guest today, please welcome honored architects, Kimberly Dowdell, president of NOMA, the National Association for Minority Architects, and Brian Hudson, executive officer and 2017-2018 president of the National Organization for Minority Architects. For more information, feel free to visit www.noma.org. Net. That's www.noma.net. Hello, Brian and Kim. It's an honor and pleasure to have you on the Modern Architect Show today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. It's really, really exciting. Really look forward to having you, having both of you on here. As we were saying uh, before we got on air, that I was looking for accomplishments to do uh, the proper introductions, and there were so many, we'd it'd still be going for a while. That is pretty amazing. I love what you guys are doing. I want to start out with some early inspirations. What I mean by that is anything that may have been galvanizing or inspired you as far back as you can recall to do what you do as an architect and to do uh, who you are now, not just as an architect, but as a person and as a professional and what it means to you. If you can go back as far as you can recall or even people that may have inspired you. Kim? Sure. So when I was very, very young, I originally wanted to be a doctor. Okay. And, you know, I, I always wanted to help people. I think that was in, in part inspired by my grandmother who volunteered for the Children's Hospital of Michigan for like 37 years. So that was, you know, very much an influential force in my early life. But around the time I was 11, I, I remember, you know, having grown up in Detroit, I remember that'd be the early 90s. It was not a really great time for the city of Detroit, especially downtown. You know, lots of really beautiful buildings, but they all boarded up or mostly boarded up and they looked like former ghosts of themselves when you know in their, in their heyday and a lot of people don't know this but detroit you know it was really used to be a very wealthy city in mm-hmm. the 20s and even in 1960 had the highest per capita income of any any city in the u.s and it very quickly declined and so by the time i came around you know these buildings were boarded up and you know the people walking around downtown especially you know seemed kind of sad and i was like huh well even though I wanted to be a doctor, I feel like there's some healing that can be done sort of at, mm. a, at a larger scale. And, and so, you know, in a middle school art class, um, I'd recently learned what architects did um, based on a shoebox design project that our teacher 
gave us where, you know, essentially she gave us a shoebox and said, hey, make this into your to your home. And so that was a really cool exercise to, you know, just think through how, you know, how where would I, where would I want my bed? Where should the door go? Where's the bathroom? You know, just kind of super basic stuff that, you know, kids can very easily grasp. And so that was my introduction to architecture. And then I kind of paired that with the notion of wanting to use the improvement of buildings as a way to kind of heal you know, at a city wide level. So yeah. that was, that was kind of how it all started for me. I thought that, you know, if we fix the buildings, then that would fix the city. And so that's what I've been working on for the last couple of decades. Oh, excellent. And we're grateful for it. Brian, your inspiration, sir, as far as back as you can recall, even if it was, you know, it doesn't have to be a galvanizing moment, but something to kind of connect you or what connects you then to now as much as you can or as much as you can recall. So, born and raised on the south side of Chicago. And my dad didn't get a chance to go to college. Uh, he was a World War II vet. And he, um, he had an affinity for drafting and architectural design. So, he got married to my mom when he came back from the war. And uh, they wound up having six kids. I'm the last of the six. And he wanted to be an architect. But he wanted to be an architect because he also liked to cook. So, he wanted to design and build his own barbecue restaurant and then, of course, sell the food. So I can remember as early as maybe five or six years old, looking at my brother's drawing, different types of art, mm -hmm. action figures. Frank Franzetta is a well-known artist. Yes. So watch my brothers draw that stuff. I was like, man, this is cool. So <laughs> I want to learn how to do it. And so talked to them. They actually showed me, because they had to take draft. So I, they showed me what architect scale was. I still didn't know what I think it was. I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Show me how to draw. So, yeah. at the time, I'm 50. I think the formerly the Sears Tower, which is now the Willis Tower, was, I think, construction was maybe complete in 71 or 72. So, one of the first things that I remember drawing was my favorite cartoon at the time was Snoopy. <laughs> And his doghouse, and seeing him kind of get into the dog fights with the Red Baron. Yeah. Uh, by the time that the Sears Tower was finished construction, I'm like, I would draw the, the skyline of the city, and I would draw a plane. I would draw Snoopy on his doghouse, and they would be encircling Sears Tower. Um, yeah. So, from that point, you know, <laughs> we're we're, awesome. we're standing on my front porch, maybe doing a summer, again, probably six or seven years old. And I'm looking at the houses across the street from me. And I asked my dad, I was like, you know, Dad, what's uh, why do these houses look so similar? Why did that happen? And he's like, well, son, you know, architect designed it that way. And the reason why they're not exactly the same is because the developer who works with the architect wanted to give different features and characteristics so that they would have different types of character. I was like, okay, so what's architect? An architect's the guy to design it. It's like, okay. Didn't really care about the developer. I was just like, yeah. who came up with how these houses look? <laughs> yeah. So I remember, you know, going downtown to uh, visit my mom at work. And at this point, my dad was like, see, you, I think you should become an architect when you grow up. I was like, oh. okay, cool. <laughs> so we would take the uh, L from the south side and we would ride down past the uh, Illinois Institute of Technology's campus. So... Had no clue as to who Mies Vanderbilt was at age seven. Yeah. But he would, he'd, he'd point out the campus, like, see that school there? I was like, yeah, that's IIT. I was like, okay. And you see that red brick building? 
Mm-hmm. But that's where the architect school was. Of course, at this point, Crown Hall was built. But when he first moved to Chicago, Crown Hall didn't exist. That was where the drafting architecture program was. <sighs> so it's like, okay. Yeah. Again, I'm a bright-eyed kid that didn't know any better. <laughs> and seeing my dad's drafting uh, or his, his uh, drafting projects mm-hmm. still in a portfolio growing up, I was like, okay, I'll do this. So he, um, I wound up going to high school. He brought me my first draft and said, I think he was more excited than I was. <laughs> Sounds like it. But I, uh, I excelled at it. You know, I got straight A's in drafting. Even to the point, and I didn't realize this until a few years ago. I was I was so good at, you know, drafting. I had friends that sucked, and they were like, uh, "Can you do my homework for me?" So I charged twenty five cents a sheet. <laughs> Did you really? So I've been an entrepreneur for over yeah. for over thirty years. Wow! But uh, yeah, that's the inspiration. That's that's what got me on the path. Outstanding. That that's outstanding both of your takes on how you became you know at least at least now because you know obviously we're always evolving and that entrepreneur you, you talked about that brian is entre- segue kind of into to noma share with us a bit about how noma began where it is now what were maybe even some of the challenges and what are some of the joys going forward okay so Can't more brian uh, step in anytime i'll take this part <laughs> noma actually was started Primarily because of Whitney Young's speech in 1968 to the AIA. Really? Yeah. And I would say maybe a couple of the original founders were probably at that AIA convention. But what it really boiled down to is about 12 black architects met in Kim's hometown in 1970 at a conference. That's the great city of Detroit, in case anyone forgets. (laughs) Detroit City. I like that. The great Um, city. But actually, so they, they had a conference there. And so the sad thing is at that time, there were so few black architects that when you were at an event like that, if you saw somebody that looked like you, you'd really run out to them like, hey, how you doing? I'm, Who are you? Where are you from? And so at least seven of these guys got together, went back to, I'm not sure if it was Roger Marjoram, but one of the local architects invited everybody back to his office. Mm-hmm. And said, you know what, guys, we were all members of the AIA, but there are some things that they're really not doing for us that we can probably do for ourselves. And so mm-hmm. what happens later, the spouses of these founders, Wendell Campbell was one of them, they decided that you guys should have a meeting. That meeting was held on Paradise Island in the Bahamas, the original 12 founders. and. <sighs> They decided to form this organization. So in the in the 45-plus years that we've been around, we've seen some highs, we've seen some lows. We only have one surviving founder left, and that's Jay Johnson. Um, he lives in upstate New York, and he's a caregiver to his wife. But having the opportunity to work for Wendell Campbell, he's actually the first black firm owner I'd ever met after graduating from high school. And he opened up his doors. I was meeting one of the architects that worked at his office that was going to help me put together a portfolio to uh, transfer to the University of Illinois at Chicago's uh, architecture program. And when I walked in the office, I see this gray-haired gentleman sitting on the couch. 
shoes off, you know, whistling this song. And I'm, I walk in, I'm like, you know, he's like, how you doing, young man? Who are you? I was like, my name's Brian, and I'm looking for um, a mentor at the time. It's Billy McGee. He's like, oh, okay, well, he tells the receptionist, call Billy, and we get to talking. And Billy comes up, and he's like, he introduces me, like, this is Mr. Campbell, this is my boss. And I was like, oh. And so Mr. Campbell points out the initials that are hanging on the wall, WCA, Wendell Campbell and Associates. So I was like, oh, you're, you're sitting on your couch in your office. Yeah. Okay. And and at that point, Wendell's like, yeah, this is my office, but anytime you need anything, come to the office. You don't have to make an appointment. The door is open. And from that day, we developed a relationship until the time of his death. Damn. That was in 2008. I actually had the chance to work for him. Um, so, oh Brian, so you've really been a part of the the soul of it. Yeah, I uh, I got to see a lot. Yeah. I got to see a lot. I got to learn a lot. It's definitely been interesting. Well, in, in, interesting. What were some of their early challenges that they expressed to you? One of the things um, that I that I noticed was they all own firms. Okay, so. Other than the executive board, there wasn't a lot of volunteer or staff. So they were kind of running things on their own and having, you know, maybe receptionists or or staff in the office kind of handle certain things. So having that, having the funds, they wanted to do scholarships for the students to, you know, advance in the School of Architecture and hopefully graduate and get jobs. So it was it was really finding money to do that, getting more volunteers. The other part of it, the reason why they came together was to have a better chance of getting projects, chasing down work. And so you're talking about juggling a lot of different things while you're still running your individual practices. And Kim and I both are <laughs> finding out how well we can, it's we not, can it's juggle. It's not easy. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a trip. But... Yeah, and it's not easy. Brian, you, you, you guys both shared that simultaneously. You both said it's not easy. I spoke of, uh, initially when we all met, I spoke of my uh, reverence for you as a professional and as people and uh, how vital you are to society, more so than I think most people even recognize, and that's part of the a good part of why we have this show. And we strive for even greater outreach episode by episode. What that getting projects, if we touch on that a bit, because really it comes down to, it really does. Obviously, you have, you have to be hired. You have to be commissioned by that. What and how is NOMA continuing to help its members in obtaining clients for their practice? I mean, I, I think the NOMA plays a lot of different roles. So my introduction to, to NOMA, which is which I'll, I'll eventually get around to answering your question, but my introduction to NOMA was actually as a student. I think, you know, most people are introduced as students. So I, you know, I, I went to my first conference in, back in 2004, the New York conference, and that really introduced me to this whole world of really mentors. And so one of the things that I, I think is so special about NOMA is that, you know, it, it really provides access to 
a wealth of people who are committed to your success. Whether you're a student or a young professional or a firm owner, people are always, you know, they're always going to have your back. I mean, and Noma has very much so a uh, family type feel to it. So, so when I when I first joined, you know, I was immediately introduced to people who, you know, just said, "Hey, if there's anything that you need," similar to what, what Brian just mentioned with with Mr. Campbell, you know, just just reach out and let me know. And so, I certainly kind of leveraged that to. You know, just to gain access to, to internships and even, you know, taking it a step further, certain NOMA members are so committed to, you know, the success of young people that actually two stories about that. A former NOMA president, Kathy Dixon, who I had the pleasure of working with as an intern, she knew that I, you know, didn't live in D.C. because I'm from Detroit, but I needed a place to stay that summer. And so she had a whole extra guest room. And oh. so she let me stay there. And I think I like maybe paid like a utility bill or something, you know, something very, very affordable. And then similarly, a couple of years later, when I moved to New York City from D.C., another former NOMA president, Steve Lewis, he lent me his parents on Long Island so that I could, you know, have a place to to kind of pop in and stay until I found my apartment, which I, you know, took me like a month to figure that out. And so it's like those are the kinds of things mm-hmm. that NOMA provides to students. And, you know, if you extrapolate that out to, you know, extending people's, um, you know, people extending their networks to, you know, connect with you know, with clients and, and other types of opportunities, that's just that's just sort of how it works. It's like if you're in a position to help someone, that's what you will do because that's sort of the NOMA way. And so yeah. I would say that's probably one of the, the major things that we do sort of informally. But one of the things that I'd like to do as, as president is, you know, as I sort of talk about my platform, which is called All In For NOMA, All is an acronym for Access, Leadership, and Legacy. And so on the leadership piece, one of the things that I'm hoping that we'll do more of is actually provide greater opportunities for leadership in the profession, which includes, you know, getting clients, includes, you know, climbing the ranks in large firms, starting, you know, people starting their own businesses, you know, really delving into entrepreneurship. And so how do we sort of take that, you know, early to mid-career professional and help them to advance in, in really meaningful ways? And so really excited about that. And I think NOMA is is in a really good position to start to, to really bolster our efforts to improve professionals from, actually not even just professionals, I mean, the access piece sure. is K through 12 college graduate students through licensure. So basically, you know, kindergarten through licensure. And then leadership is everyone, like once you're licensed, how do you become a leader either in the profession, you know, in in an organization like NOMA or AIA, you know, as an entrepreneur, maybe work in the public sector, but leadership in general to kind of help shape society. And then the legacy piece is about, you know, how do we ensure that our more seasoned members have a succession plan in place? Or how do we ensure that they're giving back to the younger generations in meaningful ways, or even that they're planning for their retirement? And so those are some of the things I think are really important to creating sustained success, you know, especially in minority communities, which, you know, unfortunately tend to be under-resourced. One thing I've been talking about a lot lately is the, the wealth gap. And so according to a 2013 study, the median net worth of a white family in America is $117,000. That same number for African-Americans is $1,700. And so when you look at that huge disparity... 1700 1700 like not quite 2000 Correct, yeah. You know, it just really points to a problem relative to lack of access. You know, even if you find out what architecture is about as a kid which in the case of Brian and myself, that that worked out, you may not necessarily be able to afford architecture school, which most people 
don't necessarily know. It's either five years, six years, or seven years. Plus, it's a pretty expensive major because there's supplies and technology. And then once you get out, you know, the the salaries aren't quite, you know, where I think we'd want them to be relative to doctors and lawyers and engineers and other types of professionals. So if you're coming from a family where the net, you know, where the median worth is or median income is $1,700, it becomes much less attractive if you kind of need to try to provide for your family. You're going to be like, oh, well, maybe I'll just work on Wall Street instead. So, you know, those are some of the challenges that we want to try to work through NOMA to, to help people overcome so that we can actually have a more diverse profession. Excellent. Excellent. Looking forward to touching back on that when we return. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Everyone deserves equal access to housing, discrimination and housing based on your race, national origin, disability, age, marital status, sexual orientation, or because you have children is illegal. To report housing discrimination, call ECHO Housing. Fair housing counselors will inform you of your rights and help you take action. ECHO Housing has offices throughout the East Bay and in Palo Alto. To get help or donate, call 1-855-ASK-ECHO, toll-free, A-S-K hyphen E-C-H-O, toll-free. We're talking today with Kimberly Dadell, president of NOMA the National Organization for Minority Architects, and Brian Hudson, Executive Officer and 2017-2018 President of the National Organization for Minority Architects. For more information, feel free to visit www.noma.net. That's www.noma.net. Brian and Kim, and talking with the, the access if we can touch, stay on that for a bit, and the access, how how is NOMA and how do, even in general does one provide that sort of access to a profession that is uh, very challenging but absolutely necessary? Okay. So I'll tell you this. This is, I guess I got a bunch of stories. Love to hear them all. <laughs> this one in particular takes place in high school. So, of course, at this point, I'm 15 years old, so... I've already been put on a track to, to chase down architecture for at least nine years at this point. And it's career day. And there's a black architect that comes in that I'm like geek because I'm like, I still hadn't met an architect at that point. So mm-hmm. I'm like, I want to meet him. I want to talk to him, ask him, what do I need to do? Again, like I'm, I'm getting straight A's and drafting. So I'm, I want to find out what do I need to further, further advance my, my dreams of becoming an architect. And so... He goes to his presentation. He works for facilities at, at a local bank. And I'm like, all right. So I finally get a chance to ask the question. I was like, so excuse me, do you advise me taking any advanced drafting courses before I go to college and major in architecture? And I quote, young man, I would not waste any time taking any other drafting courses. Find another profession. Wow. Career day. Career day. 15. And this is a high school that has probably turned out, I would say, close to 50 to 60 percent of the black architects in Chicago between 1970 and they just got rid of their drafting program maybe in 2012. So you're talking over 40 years. And so I was stunned. It's like, really? That's all you got? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. So obviously I didn't listen. 
but what it comes down to, and I actually had a chance to, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll see. I had a chance to uh, go and address. Thank God for that. A freshman <laughs> class at Limbloom in December. They're um, they don't even have drafting anymore, but they have this advanced geography course or something. And so basically, they're exposing these kids to uh, principles of urban planning and design. And so I, I told them that story, and I was like, I will never be a dream killer. Hmm. If you think this is something that you want to do, uh, my nickname in college was Hookup. So if you needed something, <laughs> I'd get it for you. And that's kind of how I live my life through, through the profession. It's I get students that call me up or shoot me emails or, or even, you know, I had a young lady that's looking for a tenure position at, um, at a school of architecture in Louisiana. You know, if, if you need a letter from me to help you get that, I'll do it. So... At the bare minimum, the 20-plus years I've been involved with NOMA, every position, scholarship, business partner, I've gotten through a direct relationship with with this organization. Even to the point that when me and Kim, and of course we can say it now because we, we work for ourselves, <laughs> but it was about 10 years ago. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, about 10 years ago. We held four positions that were, we covered, we covered different regions. And so we were all university liaisons. And so Kim was the Northeast. I was the Midwest. Another friend and business partner who was in the Bay Area, Prescott Rivas, he covered this area. And then Antoine Bryant was covering the South. And so we were, we were all on the normal board and we decided to come together because we figured we want to do something for us that would benefit the country and we could kind of chase down different projects in different regions. So the name of the company was Anomaly because <laughs> it was based yeah. on Noma. But then at the same time, we decided that Kim should be the president. She was the smartest one. <laughs> <laughs> She's a young black woman, which at that time, I don't even think she was 30 yet. So you run in a design firm, you're under 30, you're a black woman, and that's an anomaly unto itself. So I think we I think we last for about two or three years. We chased down a few projects. We made some presentations at, at the uh, APA convention in New Orleans, and, and we got out there. So it's that idea of exposure and being of like minds that, you know, we chased us down, and it's like we can do this. And I kind of had that. I had that dream at my first NOMA conference in Chicago in 94 when I found out about what this organization was about. And I'm like, we got all these students around the country. We could eventually become business partners and work in different regions. You know, of course, mm-hmm. do reciprocity. But if you got somebody that's working in the state, then we do the work together and figure it out. So that's something else that kind of was part of founding Anoma. And we've seen that come to fruition where folks that are in Detroit and San Francisco will joint venture and work on a project in Las Vegas together. So it's like, it's a jump off point to, to really kind of develop your goals and dreams. At this point, Kim is still an anomaly because she's not a president of her own company and she's not 40 yet. She's licensed and yeah, I was gonna, yeah, she got a lot. <laughs> she got a lot. <laughs> oh yeah. I just seen the, the accomplishment levels just off the charts. Thanks. How, how, how do you take that what was once an anomaly and make it an absolute standard 
you think it's possible? Or I, I think it's possible. It's a baited question. I think it's possible, but how can you expedite it or accelerate it to where it was, was once an anomaly, which you, you shared with us, Brian? Thank you. And to be, that's a standard for you to say, these are, this is what we expect of ourselves and of our contemporaries. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I would love for that to become the standard. I think that's part of our work. You know, when I talk about access, leadership, and legacy, part of that is to kind of help to build the infrastructure to ensure that more people have opportunities to, to do, you know, some of the things that, that Brian and I have talked about. You know, earlier you asked about the question of providing access to, to K-12 in particular, and I think it'd be remiss if I didn't talk about our one of our signature programs, which is NOMA Project Pipeline, which is essentially a, a program that was, that was established close to 15 years ago now to provide, in particular, middle school and high school students, but I think now, you know, we've expanded mm-hmm. to do fully K through 12, but to, you know, take them sort of through the design process and, you know, in the form of a summer camp. It could be a couple of days. It could be um, a couple of weeks. And in some cases, it depends on the particular NOMA chapter and the capacity and funding that they have to, to run those programs. But that program has touched hundreds of kids around the country, you know, in the time that it's been operational. And so that's that's the first step towards sort of this, this life cycle of, of an architect. And so, you know, our hope is that, you know, we provide these kids with more access and more, more exposure. But also we have to deal with the real world limitations of, of resources that are not necessarily so abundant in, in minority communities communities and ensuring that, you know, both boys and girls have equal opportunity so that, you know, it's not so crazy that, you know, a young woman is, you know, in a leadership position. And I think, uh, you know, for example, if we look at the number of, of licensed architects in the United States, it's about 113,000, Yes, which is probably less than the number of lawyers than there are in the state of California. But, you know, even still, uh, which true. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but even still, you know, that's a good number of professionals across the United States. But of that number, only 450 of them are African-American women. And in total, African-Americans in general represent just just around 2% of that number. And it's been 2% since the, you know, the, the famous speech that Whitney M. Mm-hmm. Young gave uh, over 50 years ago. And so one of the things that we're looking at is how do we, how do we improve that number from 2% to even 4%? You know, I yes. think, you know, because the, for example, African-Americans represent 13 to 14% of the U.S. population. And so if we only represent 2% of the population of licensed architects, but also our cities are becoming more dense and our cities are becoming more diverse and we're not seeing representation, you know, of more people of color in the profession. Who's, you know, who's really shaping our built environment? And is that something that, you know, that is going to have an impact in the future? And I, I think it will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we have to grapple with, you know, access to the profession, not only for people of color, but also making sure that women stay in the profession. I think that you know, there have been studies done that show that, you know, many women end up leaving the profession, you know, before getting licensed or shortly mm-hmm. thereafter, even though roughly, you know, 50% of architecture students are women. How many? Roughly 50%. Oh, my. Yeah. And so the, the so the student population is, you know, where it should be yeah. relative to the, you know, broader population. But, you know, as you try to navigate issues of, um, you know, just issues in the workplace or in, you know, just trying to navigate family life and all these things, you know, there are just certain issues. And so we have to be very cognizant of the barriers that people face, whether it be economic or gender related or race related. You know, there are just lots of problems. So NOMA 
hopefully will be become an even stronger kind of resource for people to kind of navigate very difficult situations and yeah. already difficult profession. Like if you were white male from a very, very privileged background, architecture is still not easy. So yeah. imagine having, you know, additional barriers, you know, hopefully NOMA can help people navigate those situations with a, a bit more ease. Superb. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Home First, formerly EHC Life Builders, is a leading provider of services, shelter, and housing for homeless men, women, and children in Santa Clara County. On any given night, more than 6,500 people in the county are homeless. Home First helps these people find and keep stable long-term shelter and transitional housing. The organization also maintains the largest outreach team that regularly visits people in the streets. If you would like to help, visit www.homefirstscc.org or call 408-539-2100. We're talking today with Kimberly Dowdell, president of NOMA, the National Organization for Minority Architects, and Brian Hudson, executive officer and 2017-2018 president of the National Organization for Minority Architects. For more information, you can visit www.homefirstscc.org noma.net that's noma.net imagine this if you will imagine when noma is an organization where kind of like uh, and it's stereotypical like if you say like italian shoes or italian sports car whereas if you know if people are part of noma or belong to noma that you can be certain that your project will be stellar how do you go about kind of branding it that way, at least, you know, from your experiences now? I'm putting it and imagining, I'm imagining this, and I don't think, I think it'd be reality, but how would we go about making it that, you know, as a brand to say, oh, yes, I know we have AIA, but, you know, if they came from Noma, no, they have such a great program. They start these, I mean, they're like, they start these kids when they're kids and they like raise them and nurture them throughout their entire professional process. So what you're getting at the NOMA a member and the architects and the people within NOMA are just a cut above. Do you foresee that? Obviously, that's a goal, but I'm kind of seeing that that can happen within five years. Kind of already started it. Yeah. Uh, Share with us how. So we're... Or experiences, you know. We're. I'm sorry. We're kind of tracking our students now. So when I was the local president for the Illinois chapter, we started off with about seven kids, and in the last three years, we've ballooned to about 127. Yeah, that's a balloon, that's for sure. At, at our camp. And so we've had students that were in middle school that are now in high school, so they've kind of aged out of our uh, pipeline camp. But they can come back in high school and be like camp counselors. But I also run another program with NAACP. It's called AXO, which is the Afro-American Academic, Cultural, Technological, Scientific Olympics. Hmm. Or we just call it AXO. Like Olympics? like in Yeah, it's okay. the Olympics of the mind. Okay. Um, and it was... In, Olympics of the mind. And it was started It was, it was was started in Chicago on the south side by another mentor of mine, uh, Vernon Jarrett. So one of the young ladies who was in camp with me for three years in middle school, now she's a sophomore at Limblu, my alma mater. And she competed last year as a freshman in AXO in architecture and got a chance to win a gold medal locally and travel to nationals to compete against other students. 
And so she signed on. She's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to college. I'm going to be an architect. She just did a job shadow two weeks ago at the uh, Skidmore office in Chicago. Another one of my mentees who works in the urban design studio at Skidmore took her there for a day to, one, give her some ideas for a design project that she's working on, but also to, to expose her to a real majority firm, what it looks like, what it feels like, who's there. We have another young lady who, through a scholarship program we started a couple of years ago, she was a national gold medalist in AXO as a junior. She got to attend our conference in Houston. And while at that conference, I have a colleague that's a professor at WashU in St. Louis. They had an opportunity to meet in my suite, discuss the school. Fast forward, she received a full ride scholarship to WashU. She received the AIA Foundation Scholarship to attend architecture school. But then this year, she came back as a freshman with the uh, WashU's design team for, we have a student design competition for college students at the NOMA conference. She came back as a freshman with upperclassmen to compete. So, you know, these are young ladies that I've been in direct contact with for the last few years. And, you know, to go from middle school to high school, from high school to college, Mm -hmm. and getting them the opportunities and the exposure to meet licensed black women architects to go and meet other professionals around the country to help them make connections to get a scholarship to WashU, which is not a cheap university. It's, it's a private institution. So, I mean, these things are happening in real time. And I, I would add also, I mean, I, I love the question, you know, just mm-hmm. to kind of get our creative juices flowing a little bit. You know, I, I think about the, the Winston Churchill quote, first we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think about, you know, as I mentioned before, the, you know, our cities, you know, becoming increasingly more diverse and having to grapple with, you know, places, having places develop over time, you know, with greater density with, you know, with people shaping them, you know, us as, as designers and, and also developers and builders, you know, having a, a sensitivity to the communities that they serve. I think that's really critical because, you know, buildings really do shape our experience. And, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but the, um, you know, the real duty of an architect is to protect the health, safety, and yes, welfare right. of the public. And so, you know, to the extent that, you know, NOMA is associated with the project, it, it means that that team gets it. That team, you know, embraces diversity. And it's not just, you know, it's not, oh, now it's just all black architects. No, it, it's a diverse array of, of architects who represent, you know, the population that they're serving. And so, you know, the notion of, of NOMA being included or NOMA members being included in a project, it basically means that there's a sensitivity to who is, is sort of authoring, you know, the future of this particular community, who, you know, who's helping to influence how something will develop in the future. And I, th- I think that's what's, you know, really important. And I, I think about, you know, the fact that NOMA is pretty much entirely a volunteer run organization. I think people don't necessarily assume that because... Oh, no, I would not have thought so. No, it's, okay. yeah. So, so I'm glad that we yeah. have this discussion. Thank you. Um, sure. Like AIA has, you know, a pretty big staff and, you know, there's a much larger membership, obviously, but we have one staff member and that's quite frankly not enough. Like if you, if we got like a check for a million dollars from somewhere, I mean, we could literally change the face of the profession. But, you know, at this point, it is an organization that 
you know, that doesn't have a ton of resources. We have a ton of heart. We have a, a board of 25 really, really hardworking people who don't get paid at all, but do this for the love of it. But I think, you know, one of our challenges to, to kind of really make that vision that you, you know, talked about become a reality, it's, it's about, you know, gaining more access to resources so that we can actually build the infrastructure that's important to to actually fleshing these things out and making them a reality. So yeah. if you know of anyone who wants to, to donate, let us know. <laughs> now, you, you talked about the healing at the beginning, Kim, you know, that healing. You initially were interested in being a, becoming a physician, but you, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you felt that you can actually make a bigger, positive, more positive impact as a, as a builder or a designer or architect. Correct. That healing. How do you feel about, and if I'm reaching, correct me, please, I don't get offended, that architecture may be as important and even more so important than healthcare, okay? And the second one is... At a legislative level, if you had architects make and influence decisions at a legislative level, whether it's city, county, state, or federal, how do you think it would change the profession of architecture and the uh, talk about the resources? Would they be as, as valued and compensated as, as a physician or a, an attorney or any other profession that requires such arduous uh, academic study and uh, licensing and certification? I think that's a fantastic question. I think that our society would be much different if architects were really empowered to do all the things that we you know, truly are capable of doing. So I you know, went to architecture school as an undergrad, did a five-year program, became licensed, but then I later went to graduate school for public administration. And people often say, well, why would you study public administration at a government school if you're an architect? That's weird. And I'm like, no, it's not weird because I feel like buildings are very much a part of the public realm. In fact, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're sort of tasked with, with protecting the health, safety, and welfare of the public. So I think there should be greater connectivity between architects and government and public policy and, and the way that things operate. And I think that the compensation of an architect should really reflect how much of an impact we can and kind of should be having because we, you know, back to the, the Churchill quote, like we are shaping the way that, you know, that people experience the built environment. And, you know, that's, that's pretty major. I mean, everything that we do is experienced in the built environment. So <laughs> it's like, there's no disconnection between. Everything. Yeah. So and I think that architecture and, and healthcare very much dovetail with one another. I mean, I think that, you know, particularly in minority communities, you know, you know, there's a tendency for there to be fewer resources, but also the location where minorities tend to live. It, it's not by mistake that they're, you know, often closest to, you know, unhealthy situations, yeah. whether it be, you know, trash or incinerators or, you know, just all these things that are just a function of being part of the, the sort of lower economic uh, strata. Yeah, And so if we look at society at large and kind of try to better understand how, you know, how architects and planners and developers and builders can work together with government, you know, really looking at public, private and not for profit partnerships to shape better environments. I think that's that's really where we kind of need to be looking, because what we're doing right now isn't quite sustainable. Yeah. How have you felt at least that architecture has evolved or changing in the last three to five years? Has it changed significantly, a bit, a little, stayed the same? I, I know it's not stayed the same, but uh, how has it evolved in your experiences? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the profession is constantly changing, you know, as it responds to uh, what's happening in the broader society. I think that as technology increases and, you know, we start to see more automation 
you know, I think that's going to impact the way that, you know, that we do our business as architects. I think, you know, sustainability has been a part of the conversation for a long time, but I think that as we, you know, get a better understanding of how that works and how our practice can actually incorporate more of that into creating more resilient communities and, and, and really just better more healthy places for people to live. I, I think, you know, this is very much a transitional time for our society and, and for the profession in general. And I think that, you know, we have to embrace technology. We have to embrace sustainability, resilience, diversity, and we have to figure out how to be more profitable. And so, you know, it's, it's, jugg- it's juggling a lot of different things, but if we don't get it right, I mean, our cities uh, in particular are going to have to pay the, the price for that. And I think that this is really the right time for us to, to figure this out so that, you know, future generations won't be footing the bill for us. Well stated. This is the Modern Architect, KZSU, 90.1 FM, Stanford. Operation USA helps communities across the nation and around the world deal with disasters, disease, and poverty by providing privately funded relief and other aid. The organization's philosophy is to offer material and financial assistance to grassroots organizations that can help with sustainable development, education, and health services. More than 97% of the money is donated to Operation USA goes to its programs. If you'd like to donate, please visit opusa.org. We're talking today with Kimberly Dowdell, president of NOMA, the National Organization for Minority Architects, and Brian Hudson, executive officer and 2017-2018 president of the National Organization for Minority Architects. For more information, feel free to visit www.noma.net. That's www.noma.net. What other questions that we may not have touched on, and I feel like we can go on for hours, literally, that you would like to share with us that we may not have touched on, Kim, Brian? So I'll I'll start just really quickly. One of the reasons why we're in California is to to scope out our 2020 conference uh, location. So I'm excited to talk about our 2019 conference location, which is Brooklyn, New York, and Oakland, California is on our short list for 2020. And the, the theme for both of those two years is planning to stay. You know, looking at the very quickly uh, shifting demographics for these, you know, for these two cities, which, you know, have um, historically been associated with having a majority minority population, but with, you know, just the cost of living going up in these particular places and them becoming more attractive, you know, especially as, for example, Manhattan, you know, became more expensive and then more people moved to Brooklyn. And similarly, as San Francisco, you know, is super expensive, people are moving to Oakland, then that is starting to change the way that the people are engaging with Brooklyn and Oakland. And so we're excited about having our, our two conferences over the next two years in those locations and in engaging in deep dialogue about what that means and how we as architects can, can actually respond to that. Yeah. So. Brian, do you have uh, any questions? Not questions, or anything that we may not have touched on, and uh, uh, there's a lot, but some anything in particular within this hour that you'd like to share with us? Well, speaking to that, it's um, we're looking at architects as developers, and I'm actually partners with two other companies that came from a need of having stable minority-owned businesses in underserved communities. So me and a mentor slash partner who I've been knowing maybe close to 20 years, Dion Lucas, we started a development company called E.G. Wood, which is a play on the community on the south side of Chicago called Inglewood, which is actually the first neighborhood that my parents moved to when they came from East St. Louis, Illinois. 
because of some city funding grants through the mayor's office for a retail thrive zone or an empowerment zone, different parts of the city that have been underserved or underdeveloped since 1968 when the King riots burned up a lot of those neighborhoods. We got an opportunity to get together with some other entrepreneurs to go after these grants, which were each $100,000 apiece for each company. We went together with these other five companies, became E.G. Wood, and won a total of $500,000 in grant money. So that is allowing us as architects and business owners to create our own projects, design our own projects, fund them, and then use those to kind of get a foothold to create more opportunities for like-minded entrepreneurs. So it's really, again, it's through these relationships that were attained through being a member of NOMA, being an active mentor, that we're sitting six months from opening up our first project, which is also the same neighborhood where I went to high school. So you think about it, it's really come full circle. My dad wanted to be an architect when he first moved to Chicago. It was Englewood. I got my drafting education at Limblom, which is in Englewood. Now, you know, 35 years later, I'm able to come back after listening to that career day yeah. fiasco <laughs> That's right. and open up a design firm blocks away from the high school where I graduated from, where these kids can ride by on the bus or in their parents' car and see somebody that looks like them following and pursuing their dreams and potentially giving them opportunities to come shadow us, work with us, work for us, or be inspired to get out of the normal ideology of what you're going to do when you go to college. Now you actually see the end result. And I I think they say you can't be it if you don't see it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so me and Kim. Even in the mind's eye. Yeah. Yeah. Me and Kim are are examples of not only doing it, but being out front and letting people see what we're doing, sharing that, and, you know, bringing folks in. Yeah. And I I would say, you know, my story also went full circle, you know, starting, you know, in Detroit. um, I I went on what I like to call a 14-year East Coast tour to, you know, New York and D.C. and Boston. But I eventually came back uh, to Detroit. I worked in city government for a little bit. And then, you know, I became a partner of of a startup real estate company called Century Partners, which, you know, effectively is a real estate private equity fund. My two partners, one worked on Wall Street, so he kind of um, really understood the um, sort of mechanism behind starting that kind of fund. And then the other partner, uh, Andrew Colomb, he, uh, you know, just grew up in real estate, you know, with his dad. And so David Alade and Andrew Colomb and, and myself, you know, we run a small company in Detroit that's really focused on urban redevelopment, neighborhood stabilization mm. in particular. And so a lot of the, the neighborhoods that I grew up, you know, around or traveling through in Detroit are, are starting to turn around in a really significant way. And so being a part of that, you know, raising, you know, close mm. to $5 million to, to actually purchase rehab using local labor and then rent or sell those homes back to to reactivate you know mostly vacant yeah, homes true. like that's that's been really rewarding but i think that's just the beginning it's, you know to, to brian's point i think it's important to serve as, as a role model so that people can see that it's possible to to not only 
you know, design things, but also to own things. And I think ownership is especially important in communities of color because so often, because of the wealth gap that I mentioned earlier, ownership isn't accessible, but that's the only way that we can actually, you know, remain. It, you know, if we, if, for example, someone owned their property in Oakland, you know, they're much Oops. less at risk of being pushed out due to the forces of gentrification, similarly in Brooklyn or really anywhere around the country. So I'm encouraging everyone to the extent that they can, you know, own their property, you know, start a business, you know, grow that business, because that's the only way to, to have a, a sustainable way to kind of continue doing the work that you feel passionate about. Excellent. Outstanding. Brian and Kim, I am so honored to have had you on our show today. I was really looking forward to it, and you're better than I even thought you were. Thank you so much for being here. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, you you, you guys are sacred. You really are. Thank you. I hope you consider being on our show sometime in the near future. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom DiAro. Our guests today have been Kimberly Dowdell president of NOMA, the National Organization for Minority Architects, and Brian Hudson, executive officer and 2017-2018 president of the National Organization for Minority Architects. For more information, you can visit www.noma.net. That's www.noma.net. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location in California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we were all assisted by Akshay Joggi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu.
Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect.